open to Romans chapter number 9, verses 9 through 18. And of course, we're picking up where we left off last week. Uh, There in the uh, chapter 9, we've been dealing with the Apostle Paul, and specifically we dealt with the thought last week of uh, grace is not a right, it's a gift. And so we're going to continue that thought, although we're going to look at it from a little bit different of a perspective this morning. Romans chapter number 9, verse 9, the Bible says, For this is the word of promise, at this time will I come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac. For the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. It was said unto her, The elder shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, Even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. Today we want to deal with the subject or the thought of the sovereign right of divine election. The sovereign right of divine election. Now, in order for us to fully understand uh, what we're what we're dealing with this morning, we need to remember uh, this along with what we viewed last week with that message entitled "Grace is not a right; it's a gift." Now, as we were witnessing through the scripture last week, and even some again this morning, uh, we realize and we can clearly see uh, that salvation by the grace of God is not a right, nor is it entitled to anyone or everyone. Uh, we need to understand it is the gift of God. So when we consider that being a gift, we know that salvation is of the Lord. We're able to see the text in its proper context when we understand that if salvation is a gift and it's not a right, then we have a clearer picture or a proper view of what salvation really is. Now remember, uh, the Jews believed that they believed that God must save them. So they had the perspective that if God is uh, real, if God is who he says he is, then God must save them because they were, uh, in fact, God's chosen people. But we learned and saw last week that just because they thought they had a birth claim or just because they thought um, I, we're one of the children of Abraham, we must certainly be entitled to this, uh, they believed they had a right to it. But what we're going to look at this morning is the only rights, if we'll use that expression, the only rights that are here today are the rights that God has, the right that he has to determine salvation and who and when and where. So that's what we're going to deal with this morning. So uh, let's remember that the term right and the term gift, uh, these are terms that are inconsistent. So they, they, they don't go together the way that we think they should go together. However, uh, we need to understand there is no right uh, that is, uh, there, there can be no right which is favor. In other words, if something is given by free favor or by free grace or by the mercy of God, then we cannot call that a right. 
We're all, as we learned last week, we're all condemned criminals. And if we're not forgiven, uh, we are uh, eternally damned. However, we understand that our forgiveness is the result of the free mercy of God. And there are no rights in any of us. So now what we see here in our text this morning is the Apostle Paul was getting really to the point of the matter. He's claiming that you claim the Jews, you claim to have the mercy of God because you're the seed of Abraham. However, he's, Paul says there's nothing in that. that that's not uh, what it is. Uh, God did not, has made a distinct choice, of course, and we'll see that this morning by dealing with the, the, the birth of Isaac and the birth of Ishmael and, and how Isaac was chosen, but yet Ishmael was rejected. Uh, the same thing we're going to see with Jacob and Esau. One was accepted and one was rejected. So now if we understand that grace is not a right, and it's something that no man or no woman is entitled to, we have to ask ourselves the question, who has the right to give such a gift? And that's really what we're going to deal with this morning, is the one who has the right to bestow such a gift is God. And that's why the subject this morning is that very thought, the sovereign right of divine election. Election or divine election is election that is by God. It is by the choice of God. So we have to ask ourselves that question. We consider that subject, what gives God the right? And that's what a lot of our text talks about this morning. Uh, As we understand this, we can uh, look at at a quote I came across this week from John Newton. He said, one of the most beautiful paradoxes in God's wisdom is sovereign grace. The same grace that is unmerited is also unstoppable. So think about what he's saying. He's saying grace is not only is it unmerited, but that grace that is bestowed by God is unstoppable. In other words, who God bestows that grace to or grace upon, it cannot be stopped. And that's really uh, what Paul's dealing with here in this text. Now, let's go back and, and just look briefly again at verse number eight. We left off at this verse last week because this really sets the stage for where we are this morning. It says in verse 8, that is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. So here's what we know. We understand that Isaac, who was born to Abram and Abraham and Sarah, He was not the child of Abraham's flesh. He was born according to a promise. Now, we understand the Bible teaches that when uh, Sarah was past childbearing age and Abraham was was, uh, well-aged, that it, it should have been an impossibility. But Isaac was born according to the promise. Now, that's the way that the line of grace runs. Grace is of promise. It's not according to the flesh. So here Paul teaches them in verse number eight, he says, though which are the children of the flesh or just born by the flesh alone, those are not the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted for the seed. In other words, he dispels that entire thought process that says, if we're of Abraham's seed, then certainly we must be the children of God. Paul says, that's not the case. So if all of my hope today lies in that hope that 
because I was born to godly parents or because I was raised in a church or because um, I have uh, some kind of lineage, then that is, has no hope. I have no hope in that. There, it's good for nothing, we might say. But if my hope of eternity, if my, my soul is resting on the reality that it's, I'm born again according to the promise of God, now I have something that I'm definitely going to, I can put my trust in, I can put my hope in. Because salvation is of his grace and it's of his power. That's what the covenant was about. The covenant that God made was not according to birth, not according to even birthright. It was according to his promise. God has determined that that's the way that it would be. So as I mentioned to you last week, uh, God's word has never failed. People would say, well, didn't God promise to save all the Israelites? And no, he never did promise to save all of them. He always made a distinguishing uh, decision between two. And we're going to kind of see that principle here this morning. So Abraham had Isaac, and Isaac was a child of the promise. And that was also a promise made to Isaac that he would become the very heir of salvation. Now, let's look at verse number 9. It says, For this is the word of promise. At this time will I come, and Sarah shall have a son. Now, there's the promise. Sarah is going to have this child. This child will be the child of promise, which is Isaac. Now, again, Isaac was not the only child, but this particular child is the child that is the child of the promise or the one what we'll see about this divine election that God is making. So look what he says in verse number 10. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac, now we're getting into the birth of Jacob and Esau, which we'll actually see that in a few moments as well. So now you've got this distinguishing mark being made between Isaac and Ishmael and a distinguishing mark being made between Jacob and Esau. Look at verse 11. For the children, now this is in reference to, you can see it's a continuation of verse number 10. For the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. Now, the children that are referenced here in the context of the scripture are the ones that were born to Isaac. That's Jacob and Esau. So now you have Jacob and Esau here who are being referenced as being part of this promise. So here's what we can see about this. If we know that there is no claim of birth to say, if I am in the lineage of Abraham just by birth, that, I can, that doesn't mean I can claim salvation. Even Esau, we'll see, who was born in the same line, is passed by. He should have been, according to the, the rights of the firstborn, he should have been the one that received the promise. However, we see that Isaac actually received the promise. So this second example here of Esau and Jacob, this shows even more clearly God has this absolute right to choose who shall be saved or who shall be chosen. Both of these boys, Jacob and Esau, both of them had the same mother. They came from the same family. They had the same father. Yet Esau, again, as the firstborn, 
according to the traditions and according to the, the Jewish way, was entitled to all the firstborn. Even if you study the scripture out, there is a principle of the firstborn. And so why is Esau passed over if he is the firstborn? This is a demonstration of God's absolute sovereign right of the divine election. That's what, he's, that's what we're teaching here. So neither one had done anything. And the Bible says right there, for the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil. So here's what we know. Neither one of them had done anything good or evil that would have had any influence on whether or not they were chosen or not chosen. Now that's that's part of the principles of divine election which we need to understand and we need to follow. Because there's a point here where he says before they were ever born, they hadn't done anything good, anything evil, that the purpose of God, look what it says, according to election might stand. So here we have neither one of these boys, Jacob or Esau, neither one had done anything according to God's plan that was beneficial to them as far as in this right of God and this divine election. So what can we say? We can say that the election of God was entirely based on his good pleasure. It's unearned. There is nothing that could gain any merit with God. So you have the idea here, there's no principle here that even hints at the idea that God chose one or the other because he foresaw in them that one of the two would, be, would do more good works than the other. That's why the Bible says, not of works, but of him that calleth. So election here, the purpose of God is according to his purpose and according to his good pleasure, not according to the works of man, good or bad. So I can't say that election is based upon the good that I do, and I can't say that the election is on the bad that I do. Nor can I say I'm not elected because I do bad or I'm not elected because I do good. It is according to God. This is the whole principle of election laid out, and this is what, can, this is what continues to sometimes cause people to stumble. Yet the Bible is very clear about what it says. So the Apostle Paul, it did not even enter into his mind that that's the thought here, that God is saying that there's foreseen faith I'm seeing, and because I know you're going to do good, I'm going to choose you. That's not even entering into Paul's mind. Why does God know the future anyway? God knows the future because he's planned it. He's ordained it. He has called it to be. He has called who the heirs of salvation would be. There's no such thing as God just simply saying, I'm going to act according to what man chooses to do. That would make God servant to man's choice. And that's obviously not what God is talking about here. So we had to think about this today, that because there is no claim of birth, and even Esau is passed by, there is no claim that any one of us can make to election other than God has given this grace freely according to his own will. He's chosen to do that. There's a couple of passages we want to look at. Look at uh, Psalm 135, Psalm 135, and look at verse number 6. And these are just some principles that uh, demonstrate God's declaration of his own sovereign right of divine election. And that's really that's the subject we're dealing with this morning. So. Uh, Psalm 135, 6. 
The Bible tells us here, whatsoever, whatsoever the Lord pleased, that did he in heaven and in earth, in the seas, and all deep places. You notice here, the psalmist is declaring whatever the Lord pleased or whatever has been done according to his will, according to his purpose, he did in heaven and in earth, in the seas and all deep places. Very clearly shows us that everything is done according to God. God fully accomplishes, he fully accomplishes all that he wills. So, when someone says something like this, well, that's going to frustrate the plan of God or that's going to hinder the plan of God. God's plan is not hindered. God's plan is always carried out. His will is always done. Now, again, that's not always easy to comprehend. It's not always easy to think about, well, then what about this situation or what about that? Is this God's will? Well, if we're trusting that it is the plan of God and that God does all that he pleases, where would you draw the line? Where would you say, okay, God uh, is involved in this, but he's not involved in this particular thing? That's why some people struggle with this. They say, I, I believe God is sovereign in everything but salvation. Well, how would you draw the line? What would be your deciding factor? What would make you say, here's why God can't do or here's why God did? God's sovereignty is according to his right. He has the right as the creator. He has the right as an almighty, holy God, perfectly righteous. He's the creator of all things. He has the right to divinely choose what he will or what he will not do. Again, they're difficult principles to sometimes grab a hold of. Uh, find the Old Testament book of Daniel now, chapter number 4. Daniel chapter number 4 and look with me at verses 34 and 35. Daniel chapter 4, verses 34 and 35. And of course, this is uh, Daniel uh, and a dealing with Nebuchadnezzar. And uh, notice what it says here in the 34th verse of Daniel 4. And at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up mine eyes into heaven, and mine understanding returned unto me, and I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored him that liveth forever, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing, and he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? Look at the principles here. Here we see even the king, Nebuchadnezzar, who in the eyes of God, we're not talking about a righteous man, but even this king realized that whatever he could do, whatever he said, was nothing compared to the ruling hand of God. Literally, we might say Nebuchadnezzar's coming to this conclusion. God rules. God rules in all things. The only reasonable explanation for what he's saying is that this has to be the works of God. God is the one behind this. So you might even say today, Nebuchadnezzar is having a, a, at least a glimpse, a glimpse of the graciousness of God. Because without divine intervention, 
without God's sovereignty, without his divine choice, every sinner, including us and including myself, is doomed. However, with this grace, this right of divine election, the sinner is wondrously converted and saved. Literally, Nebuchadnezzar says in verse 35 that all of the earth, all the inhabitants of the earth, rather, are reputed as nothing. Now, this is a king saying this. This is a king who is saying, no matter how powerful they may be according to man's standards, no matter how powerful they may be according to who they lead or who they rule over, they can do nothing to threaten God's will. They can't do anything against it. Look what it says. None can stay his hand. Literally, they cannot stop his hand from moving. Now, that's really a remarkable thought. Because the hand of mankind, no matter which king you choose, he may look today as if he has complete power or he's in control and he will never be removed, but his hand at some point will be stayed. He will no longer be the king. He'll no longer have a kingdom. But God's hand is never going to be stayed. What that word hand represents is activity. Nobody's hindering God from what he's doing. Nobody's going to say to God, you can't do. I could say this morning, I don't like the, th- the, the thought process of the sovereign right of God and this whole idea of election. I don't like it. Well, we may not like it, but you can't stop it. Remember that, that quote I gave you by uh, John Newton as we began. Remember what he said. He said, one of the most beautiful paradoxes in God's wisdom is sovereign grace. The same grace that is unmerited is also unstoppable. Now that's an amazing thought, especially those who know what it is to be saved by the grace of God. Let's look at a couple of New Testament references uh, that will solidify these these, uh, thoughts here. Look at Acts chapter number 15 and verse number 18. Acts 15, 18. And uh, I think we've we've covered uh, this verse before, but I want us to look at it again. Acts 15, verse 18. The Bible says, Known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. Now, in the book of Acts, this is a reference to redemption. This is a reference to redemption is not just for today. Redemption is for eternity. In other words, the sovereign plan of redemption, the sovereign grace of divine election doesn't end in this life. It it doesn't change. The plan of God from the foundation of the world and even prior to the foundation of the world is still intact. Now, it's interesting to me that the book of Acts says from the beginning of the world. When does mankind acknowledge his existence is when the world begins. However, God knew us before we were ever born. He knew us before the world was even created. So now we're getting into divine election being something much more than dependent upon my physical being or my physical life. Now we're talking about something eternal. We're talking about something spiritual. We're talking about something that goes beyond, many times, what our human minds can even comprehend. Now, when the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus, if you'll turn there, please, Ephesus, or Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, the church at Ephesus, uh, for the most part, we know them as believers. 
Uh, but Paul was writing to them and he was reminding them of their of their salvation. He was reminding them of their redemption. He was reminding them of their walk. He was doing all these things to people who understood what this meant. But in Ephesians chapter 1, verse number 11, we've referenced this verse many, many times. With reference to Christ, who's mentioned in verse 10 of Ephesians 1, he says, In whom also we have obtained an inheritance being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. What is an inheritance? He says we've obtained an inheritance. An inheritance is something that's passed down, something that's given. Many times an inheritance, in most cases, is something that the person who receives it never worked for. They didn't earn it. They didn't do anything to even merit it. Many times that inheritance is based upon bloodlines. It may be a family member. However, Paul says according to this inheritance, you can't disconnect these thoughts. We've obtained an inheritance being predestinated. Okay, so let's think about it this way. This inheritance, we've been given the right to enjoy the kingdom of God as his sons. We're adopted into the family of God. We are treated as his sons because of his adoption. Predestinated. It is something that has before beforehand accomplished. What has happened? This predestinated according to the purpose of him. The only reason I can claim to be a son of God today is because it's according to his purpose. Not because I had any right to it or not because I was even a son, and a lineage. Now, this goes back to what Paul's talking about in Romans. He says, it's not according to your lineage. Every Jew would think, because of who I am in Abraham, that I have a right to salvation, and yet Paul is saying, no, it's not according to that. It's according to the purpose of him. This purpose of God, he talks about it, it worketh all things. To work all things is a reference to the providence of God. God in his providence controls every event according to his plan, or we may say according to his counsel. In other words, God's plan is being carried out every single day. But what plan is it? The plan is very simply that the redemptive plan of God, this divine election, will be carried out so that all of his elect, all of those who have been chosen before the foundation of the world, will be saved and enter into his glory. That means God has ordained the circumstances in which that every child of God would hear the gospel and would be converted by the hearing of the word. Now, we find that, all right, where do I give my glory for my salvation? I can only give my glory to God for my salvation because he's the one that's worked out the plan. That's what makes salvation by the grace of God such a glorious truth. Now, there is one quote I want us to look um, also back in the Old Testament book of Malachi. Let's go back to the Old Testament, the last book, and I want you to see this because this is a reference that's made uh, to the nation, all right? It's It's made to the nation of Israel, but I want you to see that the names Jacob and Esau are mentioned even in this context. The book of Malachi, chapter number 1, verse 1. The Bible says, The burden 
of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, saith the Lord, yet ye say, wherein hast thou loved us? Or in other words, what have you done to show us you love us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, saith the Lord, yet I loved Jacob. And I hated Esau and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. Now Malachi, the burden of the Lord here, that the burden there literally means a prophetic utterance or a prophetic thought. And it's being given to Israel. Notice it says, to Israel. So let's, let's not ignore the true context here. So it's referring to the entire nation. So this declaration between Jacob and Esau is being demonstrated or being shown to us as being declared to the entire nation of Israel. I have loved you, it says in verse 2. That is a declaration of election. So even in the case of an entire nation of Israel, there is a declaration of election being made. What the love of God can be described as. The love of God is an expression of the will of God. So to be loved by God is to understand the will of God being expressed to you. It's a decision to choose. When God says, Israel or Jacob have I loved, that is a choice to love. That is a decision to choose. Yet notice what happens. And it says, saith the Lord, they respond, wherein hast thou loved us? In other words, they are denying what God has declared. What can we say about them? They are insensitive to the words of God. They're not responding. Now, at the same time, he says, I've loved Esau. I've hate, or I've loved Jacob. I hated Esau. Now, this phrase is also an expression of the will, and it's a decision to reject. So what God is proving here is he's proving his electing love by comparing Jacob and Esau. It's electing grace that turns into an inheritance. But God takes Esau's inheritance and he turns it into, look what it says in, in, at the end of verse number three, and I hated Esau and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. God turned Esau's inheritance into a wasteland. That is evidence of a rejection. Now again, we get into this and we begin to say, does God have a right to choose and a, to make the decision? If you believe in the sovereignty of God, then you have to acknowledge that even in texts like this where we don't fully understand, we have to say God had the right and the choice to do. So it would be wrong for us to say God can't do that. But let's keep this in mind. That quote from Malachi verses, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, it is in relation to two nations. We understand that. There would be the general blessing of Israel. But now when he said that, he wasn't saying that all of Israel individually is going to be saved. Israel is God's chosen nation. Esau is still to this day a rejected nation. Esau, the lineage comes through through what we refer to as Edom or the Edomites. But what we see here is God's purpose with regard to two nations, but it breaks it down even to two individual men, and you can't separate the two. 
In other words, I can't say by God saying I love Jacob and I hated Esau is just a national election. You can't separate it from the election of Jacob as an individual and Esau as an individual. See, people are willing to admit God has chosen Israel as a nation, but they're not willing to come to a conclusion that that doesn't mean God has a right to choose individuals. And yet, that's exactly what Paul was teaching here. He's not just teaching about a general national election. This is even down to individuals. So look what he says at the end of verse number 11 back in our text in Romans 8. He said that the purpose of God according to election might stand not of works but of him that calleth. It was said unto her, the elder shall serve the younger. Now this is in the birthright. Esau was the older. Jacob was the younger. Twin boys, but Esau was born first, so he would have been entitled. But notice what it says. The elder shall serve the younger. In other words, the birthright of Esau is being taken from Esau and is being put on to Jacob. And then he he confirmed scripture. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. And then he says this that really ties this together. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. Look at that phrase, unrighteousness with God. What does that mean? Literally, this is teaching us, Paul is asking this rhetorically. The answer is, of course, no. Everything that God does, by its very definition, is righteous. Because everything God does is right. So if I say today, God can't do that, then what I'm saying is, is God's doing something that's not right. Now I'm declaring God to be a sinner. Now I'm declaring God to be something that he can't be. He cannot sin. He cannot lie. He cannot change. God would make himself a liar if his acts were unrighteous. Paul uses the strongest denial of that possibility when he says, God forbid. That's literally what that means, that this is unthinkable. Verse 15, for he saith, that he is reference to God, saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. God asserts his absolute right to show mercy as he pleases. This is a reference back to the book of Exodus chapter number 33, and, of course, this is one we often go to when we look at this and we consider it. But Exodus thirty-three nineteen, Moses is being declared to by God who says this, and he said, I will make all my goodness pass before thee, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee, and will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Paul is quoting Exodus thirty-three nineteen. Now, what was happening in the context of Exodus 33 is Moses was interceding on behalf of the people. And by Moses' intercession, God's wrath became the, the occasion, his, this intercession of Moses became the occasion of an unprecedented display of God's mercy or love towards them. Because of Moses' intercession, there was this glorious display that was given to them. God promised to reveal his glory to Moses. But he also says at the same time, but I also have the right 
to give my knowledge to whomever I choose. Just as God had the right to harden Pharaoh's heart. We say today, who is God to harden Pharaoh's heart? Is that fair? The question isn't, isn't fair. The question is, does God have the right? And the answer to that question is always yes. If life was fair, if our eternity was settled by what was fair, none of us would have the grace of God displayed upon us. We would have been given no knowledge of God. So when we think about this, God has the right to show mercy not on the basis of human will, not on the basis of what man does, but to whomever he chooses. Now that's what Paul's talking about in Romans chapter number 9 in these verses we're talking about. He says in verse 16 of Romans 9, So then, it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. Very clearly, man has no independent ability to choose or obtain salvation apart from God. And here's a part that startles us. God is under no obligation to bestow mercy upon any man. God doesn't have to do it. That's what it means to have a right the sovereign right of divine election is very simply God has the right to do as he pleases. Now, we like to give man rights. We talk about this a lot. Uh, we live in a country today that is uh, basically people are screaming, I have a right to do this. I have a right to do that. I can choose to do whatever I want to do. And in, in, the, in the context of a government and in the context of a country, in the context of a constitution and rights as a citizen, that very well may be true. But God does not govern according to the rights of man. God governs according to the sovereign right of who he is. That's the difference. So when I consider should God act upon my will? The answer is no. God acts according to his will. When I respond to God, it's because God has opened my eyes and given me a picture or a knowledge of who he is, and he's given me the ability to respond. He's made me willing to acknowledge this is who God is. But he says it's not him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but God who shows mercy. And then he acknowledges Pharaoh. For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Very clearly, he's, he's saying that Pharaoh was raised or given the position of prominence in order that the purpose of God might be seen. Now, Look what he says, for the scripture saith. Uh, the scripture saith is a reference to literally God speaking. When we read the word of God, we're reading God speaking. Today, there is a, there's an intense desire to move away from the authority of the scriptures and to simply make the Bible just a book of ideas or philosophies. Uh, it's being equated with other literary works, for example. Someone might say, uh, the Bible and this literary work, they're on the same level. I get the same from each one. And that's a fallacy. The Word of God stands alone. So when the Bible says, the Scripture saith, 
If I'm to come at the Bible with some other philosophy of man and to say, well, this book says, or this commentator says, or this preacher says, I'm making a terrible mistake because I do not have the authority of the Scripture. But if the Scripture says it, then I have to acknowledge that the Scripture is always right. The Scripture is always correct. For the Scripture saith unto Pharaoh. Notice the Scripture saith unto Pharaoh. It doesn't just say about Pharaoh. It doesn't just say about the story of Pharaoh. Literally, God speaking to Pharaoh tells him, for this purpose I've raised you up that I might show my power in thee. What happened to Pharaoh and his kingdom? It fell. God sent Moses to work through him to deliver his people. They escaped across the Red Sea and Pharaoh and his armies, millions, were drowned. That was the wrath of God being carried out. And again, our human will screams out and says, well, how is that fair? It's not about fairness. It's about the right. Remember, grace is not a right. It's a gift. We learned that last week. Today, we're learning that the only right is the sovereign right of divine election that God has. And the final verse we'll look at this morning Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. Notice there is a contrast between mercy and hardening. Hardening and mercy. It says this God will have mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. God, again, raised up Pharaoh to show his power in Pharaoh's judgment. But at the same time, God also, the Bible says, in Exodus 4.21, that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. If you go back to the book of Exodus, chapter number 4, look at a couple of verses when we get there. Exodus chapter number 4, verse 21. Notice what the Bible says. Exodus 4, verse 21. The Bible says, And the Lord said unto Moses, When thou goest to return into Egypt... See that thou do all those wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put in thine heart, put in thine hand rather, but I will harden his heart that he shall not let the people go. And thou shalt say unto Pharaoh, thus saith the Lord, Israel is my son, even my firstborn. The word harden, what does it mean? Literally the word means to make strong or stubborn. It is literally to resist or to be insensitive to. This says God will make Pharaoh insensitive and resistant to God's word, the scripture saith or God saith. You're still there in the book of Exodus. Go over to Exodus chapter number 7, verse number 3. A few chapters over, Exodus 7, verse number 3. The Bible again declares the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. But Pharaoh shall not hearken unto you that I may lay my hand upon Egypt and bring forth mine armies and my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great judgments. I will harden his heart. I will do these things, signs and wonders. Those are amazing acts of God's power The power of God and these events 
demonstrates God's sovereignty, but it also declares his right. Because of the mighty, amazing acts of God, that gives him the right. You realize just the Red Sea crossing alone, just what took place there, that God had the ability to take the sea and to create an opening in it that his people could walk through it and then at the very moment cause the water, the walls to come back down. That alone, if that was the only event that God had ever done in the Bible, that would be enough to give him absolute right of his sovereignty. Because here's my question. Who else could do that? The answer is no one. No king, no matter how powerful he is, could cause the ocean, the sea, to do what it did. Now, if we just view it as just the amazing act that it was, that's a wonderful thing. But remember, it was much more than just a miracle. It was a demonstration of God's power. It was a demonstration of God's sovereignty. It was a demonstration that the supposed king of all, Pharaoh and his army, at that time the most powerful nation in the world was Egypt. And yet God used an ordinary, everyday thing, the ocean, to carry out his wrath and to carry out his judgment. Again, we could argue today and say, listen, I just don't like the way that sounds. I don't like it sounds unfair. It sounds unreasonable. That's where you miss the truth of what a right is. A right is only given and only can be commanded by God. And then the final verse in Exodus chapter number 9, verse 12. Again, the phrase, And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he hearkened not unto them as the Lord had spoken unto Moses. Exodus 9, 12. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. Through all these plagues, through all these circumstances, the Lord worked all of these things, and yet, at the same time, he hardened the heart of Pharaoh. Now we think about these truths today, and we think about where does God's sovereign right end? There is no end. God's sovereign over all things, including the will of man. Now there are many, hopefully none of us, that will not like that statement. They don't like the fact that I don't like my will being taken over. I don't like my choice or my freedoms being taken. Again, Maybe we say that with regard to a government, or maybe we say that with regard to some privilege that we have as American citizens, for example. But when it comes to the things of God, we need to be thankful that God is sovereign even over the will of man, because had he not made us willing and had not demonstrated mercy on us, then what would make us any different than the hardening that he did to Pharaoh? And the answer to that question is absolutely nothing. God made us willing. There's nothing unrighteous in God. Everything he does, every act he takes, God is acting not only in righteousness, but he's acting according to his right. So the challenge for us today is to consider this. The hope of man rests in the divine or the sovereign right of divine election. The hope of man rests in the right that God has and this divine election. When a man is condemned, which all men, the Bible says, come short of the glory of God, 
who or what can we appeal to? All we can appeal to is the mercy of God. All we can do is appeal to the grace of God. If you don't believe in the sovereignty of God, where is your hope? You have no hope. That is where our hope is, is in the sovereignty of he who is all-powerful and he who, the only who has the right to show mercy or to harden. Now this is what was stinging the Jews. Now again, let's not be unfair to the Jews because we also know there are people today who want to appeal to their own will. They want their salvation to be of themselves. But here's the reality of it all. The Jews in the context in which Paul was writing this, for our argument's sake this morning, the Jews that Paul was writing to, they could not endure the thought that God had that kind of power over them. In other words, they might say, who is God to have that kind of sovereignty? Yet, that's the very hope that we have today. God's sovereignty is what chooses to save. It is in the divine election of God before the foundation of the world. Not just for the Jews, but for the Gentiles. So today, if I'm trusting in some sort of lineage, or I'm trusting in something that is beyond the mercy and the grace of God, then I am just as guilty as what the Israelites here were doing, saying, listen, we don't like this. Now next week, we'll get into even a, a, a better illustration or maybe I should say a further illustration of how Paul demonstrates this sovereign right of God in doing what he does. Christ has already in his mercy has sent the gospel to us. The fact today that even though we're not meeting in a church house, we're not meeting in our church building today, we are proclaiming the gospel, the gospel of the mercy of Jesus Christ. We're, we're, we're proclaiming that today, even though we're not meeting together the way we usually do. However, we also know that because of this, there is a humility that should come from the reality that if my eyes have been opened, if I've been made willing to receive and to not reject the things of God, I ought to fall on my face before God and thank him and praise him for all that he's done. Because apart from that, I have nothing. I'm not ashamed today to declare the absolute sovereignty of God over the will of man. I'm not ashamed today to say that it is the sovereign right of God to elect whom he chooses. This election that causes so much, so much problems for people. Listen, this is hope. This is where we find comfort. Even though God seems to do things in our lives that we don't fully understand. He allows things that we look back and we sit and we say, how can this, how can God let this happen? But the reality is, is even the word of God teaches that it is this very comfort, this very hope that we find. I came across this verse this morning, and I want to share this with you as we close, but 1 Timothy chapter number 5, and I have to say, I've seen the verse many times, but when you get studying about election and the sovereign rights of God, this verse now takes on a different meaning because it opens our eyes more to what Paul was telling Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 21. He says this, I charge thee before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, 
and the elect angels, that thou observe these things without preferring one before another, doing nothing by partiality. Now, I understand the context. Paul was teaching Timothy uh, to not show favoritism. But it's interesting that he uses the word elect angels. And again, you might say, well, preacher, I think you're reading into it. No, the reality is, is God is so sovereign over all things that even the holiest of angels that did not fall is based upon the sovereign election of God. All angels are not holy angels. There are angels which have fallen. There are the angels that were of Satan. We believe the doctrine of sovereign grace. We believe the doctrine of God's predestination because the Holy Scriptures declare that to us. Now, some would say, if you believe that, you're not concerned about evangelism or you're not concerned about the gospel. I would tell you, as I've said over the last few weeks especially, divine election ought to light a fire of your evangelistic zeal. I ought to be more concerned for people. I ought to be more burdened about the people who are outside of the body of Christ than I was previously because of this. Yet the accusation comes by many who deny election that this will take away your zeal. I would tell you today it's the absolute opposite. Now it's going to be, it's sometimes very hard to reconcile these two things. How can God be sovereign and man be responsible? But the reality is, it all comes back to trusting in God. Having a sovereign God gives you confidence. Having a sovereign God gives you comfort. And it gives you unlimited freedom to proclaim a gospel. Because you realize that all who are his will come unto him. He will in no wise cast out. When I preach the gospel today and I preach the gospel next week and the weekend after that, and for however many years God allows me to proclaim the truth, I can take comfort in this. He's not going to miss one. He's not going to leave one out. They are all going to be saved. Now you say, preacher, how do we know? We're not supposed to know. The Apostle Paul never went from town to town and from letter to letter desiring to know, now how many people are receiving the letter? How many people are acknowledging the truth? How many people got saved? He didn't ask for a a report. How many souls trusted Christ in your meeting? He simply said, preach the gospel. Even to the, the church at Corinth, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says, we preach Christ. Why did he say that? He said that because that is the hope. Now today, we as a church, we're still learning about this. We're still coming to grips with understanding what all of this means. But I hope today and I hope within our own heart that we understand that I find comfort in this doctrine. I don't find, it makes me uncomfortable. It makes me more confident in the God that I serve. Today we come to the Lord with many burdens. We come to the Lord to say there are many things that say, I'm not sure I can do this. But understand this, God has not called us to try to figure it all out. He's just called us to trust Him. Friends, my hope today is that 
even though we're not gathered like we usually are, that today we'll be reminded of this, that the great truths of Scripture, for the Scripture saith, it's a Scripture that's declaring this to you. I'm not declaring this to you on my own merit or my own philosophy. I'm declaring to you the sovereign right of divine election because the Scripture says so. Again, if you're struggling with this, if you're struggling with this doctrine of election, cry out to God and say, God, give me understanding. Give me discernment. Open my eyes to the doubts and the things that I'm struggling with. Again, it is only God that can open the eyes. And God opens the eyes through the Holy Spirit. I trust it will help us today. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. I trust you will have a great day. Again, thank you for your understanding of having to cancel services this morning. And uh, we'll look forward to seeing you on Wednesday. And uh, again, uh, let's be praying for one another. Let's pray and then we'll be on our way. Father, we thank you and we praise you for the truth that we've heard this morning. Lord, we realize today that we don't have it all figured out in our own humanity. Lord, there are so many things that we struggle to fully comprehend. But Lord, we are so thankful today to know that we have the Word of God. And the Word of God declares truth. Lord, we may not even fully see it. We may not fully comprehend it. But we know it's the truth of the Word because the Bible says so. Lord, I pray that you would help us all today. Help us as a church to fully embrace what the Bible says. Lord, I know many of us, we come from many different backgrounds and many of us have been in different types of churches and we have had different types of experiences. But Lord, today may this be something that just resonates and, and settles in our heart. And Father, if there are some today that are struggling with this doctrine, they're struggling with God's sovereignty and election and predestination and foreknowledge and all these large words, Lord, that we would just see the simplicity that is here. To trust in a God who is sovereign over all things and is working all things out according to his will. Lord, again, we thank you that we were able to even meet together in this manner. Lord, we miss being with our church family today, but we realize today, Lord, that there were other plans. But Lord, you've allowed us even this time together to be around your word. Lord, I pray that you'd open our hearts, open our minds. Lord, prepare us to be back again on Wednesday when we can look to your word again. We love you and we thank you. And it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Have a great day. Thank you for joining us and we will see you on Wednesday.